If you say to me, if you come in to say to me, I just want my child to be happy, I guarantee you the next words that'll come out of my mouth are, but not all the time. Because when you say that to a child, not only, again, it's as unrealistic as your child being perfect, you're putting an enormous amount of pressure on a child that their emotional state is what you are depending upon. Welcome to Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about how to manage those tricky emotions that show up in all families. Serious stuff without being too serious. I'm your co-host, Robin, and I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a Fluster Clucks, and I'm here to help you find your way. And I'll even tell you what to do and what to say here. The book came out, Anxiety Audit, in your bookstores now so you can get it. Go ahead and order the Anxiety Audit and spread the love. Welcome back from the West Coast. How was the premiere of Anxious Nation? Well, it was super fun. Yeah, we got all glammed up. It was really crazy, actually, to sit in this big theater, like with a big screen and see your face keep coming up. I was really working to not be self-critical of like how my bangs looked. Although at one point I was like, oh, my bangs look strange. But I know that's not the point of the movie, my bangs. But it's just interesting. It's an interesting experience. And this was at the Newport Beach Film Festival. It was. Yes, it was at the Newport Beach Film Festival. So hopefully the movie will start to be distributed. It's in several other film festivals. So it's going to Portland and some other ones now that I can't remember. But yeah, it's making the round. So it's out in the world, which was really Really great to see. I'd never seen the final cut, so it was really fun. So I know um, Anxious Nation definitely has a social media presence and a website. So if you're interested, in case you live in those cities, you could go to the website and check it out, Mm -hmm. and maybe you'll be able to see it. I think the goal after these film festivals is that there might be a streaming contract where we can all watch it on one of the streaming services. So we'll definitely keep you posted about that news on the podcast and in our Facebook group. In the theme that anxiety is everywhere, Christine and I were getting our makeup done. I went with my pal, Christine, came with me, which was so much fun. Hi, Christine. So I'm getting my makeup done by this lovely woman who had no makeup on and had extraordinary skin as she's two inches from my nose. So she asked me what I do and I tell her why we're there and blah, blah, blah. And she just tells me that her little eight-year-old has started being terrified of her nose bleeding. Because a little while ago, she something happened like she got a nosebleed. So now she's terrified that her nose is bleeding. And she says, so I'm just like, I'm really handling it. So she's out playing with her friends. And like eight times, she just comes running back to me and says like, mommy, is my nose okay? Look at my nose. Do I have any blood in my nose? And she said, and I just do what I got to do. I just say to her, you know what? You're totally fine. There's no blood in your nose. Your nose is not going to bleed and it's going to be totally fine. And then I send her back out to play and then she comes back and she wants me to check her nose. So I've just got to keep checking her nose and just keep letting her know that she's going to be fine. And I'm just like, okay. (laughs) This happens to you all the time. It's like, okay, I'm supposed to be receiving a service right now, but am I about to offer one? Yeah. So she's like curling my eyelashes and I'm keeping my mouth, my face still. So I'm like, okay, so what you want to do is you want to stay away from the content-based reassurance. Let me explain to you what that means, right? It's really not about her nose. And I'm trying to give her like a consult while I'm getting my makeup done. And she was like, oh, that's really great. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, oh. So yeah, it happens everywhere. 
interestingly, when I was getting my makeup done to film Anxious Nation, I was probably in Boston three years ago, maybe now, the makeup artist was doing my makeup and she's like, oh, I get so anxious and my daughter is really anxious. And she's like, what should I do about that? And the same exact thing happened. It always happens. I think it has less to do with makeup artists and more to do with every parent is dealing with this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, during the pandemic, I went to get my teeth cleaned and there was a different dental hygienist. Can you imagine having a conversation with a dental hygienist about her anxious kid while you're getting your teeth cleaned? That was more challenging, actually, than having the conversation while I was getting my, <laughs> while I was getting my eyelashes curled. Yep. I once planned a family vacation for my dentist while I was in an appointment. It's like, yeah. So it's like, let me spit, say something really fast. And yeah, yeah. I know. It's so awkward. It's so awkward. I'm doing therapy with this person while she's scraping the tartar off my teeth or while she's putting the foundation under my eyes. But anyway, it was totally fun. So yeah, hopefully it'll be out and about. It really is pretty powerful. And I got to meet a lot of the kids that were in the movie that I have seen them on film you know, over and over and over again. They were there. I felt like I was meeting celebrities because I was meeting these wonderful human beings that were so honest and vulnerable. It was really cool. I can't wait to see it. Today, we're going to talk about some things that you don't like very much. So the theme of today's episode is phrases that people say that, <laughs> that I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We actually, this is the second time we've referenced Mr. Bill in oh, an episode. I was just thinking that yeah. too. <laughs> Sorry, I went into my Mr. Bill no <laughs> voice. No, no, don't what? say that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And some right. of you are like, who's Mr. Bill? Yeah, Saturday Night Live from the 70s. Yeah, so these are things that drive me nuts. I saw your list. I definitely am from a family where a few of these were said every single day. And I think it's great to have this conversation because there's an underlying philosophy about parenting. It's a good chance to reevaluate a little bit because uh, you hear this stuff all the time in your office. So yeah, all of these phrases are really, they border on cliche. So you don't even think about what they mean when you say them at this point. I just want to shine a little light from the anxiety perspective in terms of how can we change these up a little bit? Because they're so common. They really are common. I can't imagine none of you say any of them. I don't think this episode is for anxious parents. I think this episode is for everybody. Mm -hmm. You're right. What's the first one? Um, so the first one is, I just need you to find your passion. And this sounds like things you hear parents say about their high schoolers. Yeah, although I'm hearing it starting earlier. The reason that, that I don't like that phrase is because when you say to a child, and maybe it's a middle schooler, because truly like, Seventh graders now are trying to get ready for their careers, at least getting ready for their college admission stuff. When I hear a parent say, I just need you to find your passion, here's what I hear. I hear them saying, we need to discover an activity that you're really good at and that's also really unique. And I want you to be singularly focused on that so that you develop a level of expertise that will look really interesting on your college application. That's what I hear. Like we have to figure out how to make you into this expert tennis player or this expert baker or this expert mathematician. And we're going to supplement your life with the training and the coaching and the tutoring so that when we present you 
to the people who will evaluate you, you are a star that shines. That's what I hear. You just need to find your passion. What do you wish the parents were thinking about instead? We just need to allow this child to discover all sorts of different things about themselves because they're not done yet. I want my child to be able to try a lot of different activities and they don't even know what they're good at yet. They haven't even discovered that they enjoy this particular instrument. I mean, your husband, my brother, played a lot of different instruments, didn't he? And he's so musical, but he tried a lot of different things. When we narrow it down, when we are trying to do it based on judgment and outcome and expertise, kids don't get the chance for one, to play, to explore. Different activities allow you to be connected to all sorts of different people. So if you're going to be just a violinist, if we're going to target that, if we're going to focus on that narrowly, if we're going to declare that that's your passion, then maybe you're going to miss out hanging out with the kids that really like to play flag football or that really like to paint or that really like to just have sleepovers. Not everything that we do in childhood is resume building. And when I hear, we need to help you find your passion, I hear resume building. Well, let's also address the resume building directly, because those parents from a very loving place think that they are helping a child to prepare for their future. Mm -hmm. But if someone who feels that way is listening... You're talking about preparing their child for the future with different skill sets. Correct. That go beyond college. Because how many people do you know? You talk about this in a lot of past episodes. You know the highest performing students. You know the schools they get into. And you know that the mental health isn't a guarantee that they have the capacity of enjoying their college experience, for example. Mm -hmm. You'd much rather your child have the emotional skills to not only succeed and make friends in college and learn, but then also do that afterwards too. So it's a shift. I've talked about this in other episodes, actually. It's shifting that parenting goal to something that's much more internal and away from the resume looking good on paper. Mm -hmm. I want my kid to look good on paper and validate all the effort I've put into them by their college acceptances. Yeah. I also want them to shift away from this idea that I have to get so good at this skill so that I can be better than everybody else that's competing with me. And I think that really gets in the way of true social connection. Because when we talk about kids and we talk about bolstering them and bolstering their mental health, one of the things that comes up over and over and over again is genuine connection and doing something that's meaningful, not just to you and your resume, but meaningful to other people, giving of yourself. And sometimes I've even seen people take volunteer activities or creating a nonprofit or going and doing Habitat for Humanity, not because they're trying to be generous and give of themselves because it will look good on their resume. So this whole idea that I have to create you into something that the world will admire is going to backfire. Kids discover all sorts of different things about themselves, but kids change and their passions change. One of the things that's interesting is this, and I've talked about this a lot with sports, is this idea that you have to pick one sport and do it all year round. 
many, many of the people that are involved in kids with athletics say they should be doing different sports and multiple sports for their friendships, for their emotional health, for their physical health. This idea that we're going to narrow this down and we're going to cultivate this expertise, it's not really a passion a lot of the times. It's a chosen expertise that we're going to cultivate. So pay attention to that. Yeah. When I look at my son's, one of my son's passions when they were little, like if my son could be a professional Lego builder, that probably would have been pretty good. But you know what? He's 24 now. I don't really think he's excited about building Legos anymore. But that certainly was his passion when he was 10. Things change. And it really, really is important for you to let your children evolve and grow and experience different things. Experience being a beginner, experience in trying new things, experience failing at things. All of that is really important to their overall growth. What is the next one? Here's another phrase I hear all the time. It runs in the family. Nature versus nurture. Yeah. And people have different phrases. They say like, oh, she comes by it honestly, or oh, we've always been that way. It runs in the family. And when people say that, I think oftentimes they mean, well, there's nothing we can do about it. So parents will say to me, well, she's really anxious. And I know I have anxiety and my grandmother has anxiety and my mother was pretty anxious. So I know that it's genetic or I know that it runs in the family. And we really want to make sure that when we're talking about that, we're not laying it out as this is a done deal. We know that there's a genetic push. If we look at with anxiety, if we look at it with substance abuse, you know, you've heard me say a lot of times OCD really has a genetic push behind it. But when we say, well, it runs in the family, then we're discounting how much we can do in the nurture department. If it does run in your family, rather than taking that passive stance like, well, it runs in the family, you've really got to pay attention to that and you've got to be preventative. We've talked about that a lot. What are the skills that you want to teach your kids? Flexibility, you want to increase autonomy, independent problem solving, handle uncertainty. If you've got a family that substance use runs in the family, you want to talk to them about that directly, that it runs in the family makes people too passive when they're dealing with their mental health. That's what I was about to say. I bet the families that say that to you, the parents themselves haven't probably had therapy themselves. Mm -hmm. Because if you have had therapy as an adult, it's almost like if you show up to see you because your child is suffering from anxiety, it would be very helpful if they understood you modeled this, it was modeled for you, it was modeled for your parents, how can you disrupt patterns? And this is what you always talk about. Right. Last night when I was flying home from California, my brother told me to listen to Dana Carvey was on the Mark Marin podcast. And there's a lot of things he talked about that I didn't know. But his father, he said, was just this really sadistic, sociopathic guy. And he went into therapy at the age of 61 to start figuring out how he was impacted by his parents' patterns, because his mom apparently was quite the enabler of his dad. And he said he calls his siblings and says, it was really bad with dad, right? Like dad really was a horrible, like dad really hated me, right? He went into therapy at 61 to discuss his sadistic father who died a few months ago. So that's a good story of it's never too late. I've always been kind of amazed that Bill Hader, who was having 
panic attacks while he was on Saturday Night Live, went into therapy to deal with his panic attacks when he was 37. I thought that was so late. Like, God, nobody was getting you help before that. Dana Carvey, 61. Yikes. But he's doing the work. You know, when we say it runs in the family, it really is important for you to understand what that means and what you can do about it if you're a parent. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about one of my phrases I would love to eliminate. <laughs> boys will be boys. Oh, should I not say it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Good secret keeping. <laughs> That's okay. like a toddler, right? Like a toddler goes like, I'm not supposed to tell you that I have this present for you, which is a mug. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think seeing a therapist or a psychiatrist would be helpful, but you don't have the time to actually find one? And then, like, when do you have time to meet with them? Try Talkspace. By doing everything online, Talkspace has made getting the help you want easy, accessible, and affordable. It's in network with most major insurers. There's no need to commute to appointments. You won't miss time at work or have to line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. Talkspace lets you send messages to your therapist so you don't have to wait for your next session. Therapy can help you shift your perspective and find tools to cope in difficult times. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, substance abuse, relationship issues, and much more. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $80 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster to get $80 off your first month. That's Talkspace.com slash Fluster. Hey, so the other day I had to change my car insurance. And guess what? I bought new car insurance and they sent me a check, right? So that you could buy something and get money back at the same time doesn't happen very often. And it's pretty darn fun. That's why you got to check out Ibotta. Ibotta is a free app that gives you the most cash back every time you shop on hundreds of items from groceries to beauty supplies to toys. You can make sure you're beating inflation no matter what you're purchasing. So the average Ibotta user earns $256 a year. That's actually more than I got back on my car insurance, I'll tell you. That could cover the cost of an entire shopping trip. Other apps give you points that don't amount to too much. With Ibotta, just add your offers in the app, upload your receipt, and you get real cash that you can cash out to your bank account, PayPal, or gift cards. So join the 50 million users, earn cash back, Every time you shop, over 2,700 brands, everybody, retailers, including Lowe's, Sephora, Best Buy. Right now, Ibotta is offering our listeners $5 just for trying Ibotta by using the code FLUSTER when you register. Just go to the App Store or Google Play Store and download the free Ibotta app to start earning cash back and use the code FLUSTER. That's I-B-O. TTA and use the code FLUSTER. Okay, we're back. Okay, Lynn, so this next phrase, whew, for me, it's not one I like. What is it? No, it's not one I like either. I think we can totally agree that this one should be banned from the planet. Boys will be boys. Yeah, no way. Oh, hate it. Hate it. 
Okay, so why do you hate it? Michelle Obama made a quote that really spoke to me that I read more recently than my hatred for that phrase, which was, we raise our girls, but we love our boys. Mm. And I think that what I don't like about it is that it implies that there is no responsibility of the parent to mold and to guide. And I think that it's being complacent in toxic masculinity from a very early age. And it's denying our young boys the opportunity of learning to curb their emotions that leads to violence. Yep. Agreed. You have one boy, I have two boys. And I actually had talked about this phrase with our incredibly lovely, wonderful Mary Montessori, just such a role model, because she had two boys also. And to me, that phrase just means we go, yeah, well, I guess they're going to hit each other. Yeah, well, I guess they're going to be violent, right? Yeah, I guess this is what boys do. And I just had such a visceral reaction when I heard other parents of boys say that. It's selling your son short. Yes. It's saying like, well, because they're a boy, that means that they're going to hit. Or because they're a boy, that means that they're going to be violent or they're going to do this or they're going to do that. Gosh, I was so clear with my boys when they were little that that was not how we were going to do this thing. Yeah, you have that great thing that you always said about the rules in the house. Mm -hmm. I would say there was no hitting and you're not allowed to hit each other. So I would say, I don't hit daddy. Daddy doesn't hit me. I don't hit you and you don't hit me. Daddy doesn't hit you and you don't hit daddy. So why would I make an exception that the two of you are allowed to hit each other? That doesn't seem to make sense, does it? And that worked. It worked. It worked. Yeah. I didn't ever want them to have the impression that I shrug my shoulders and say, well, that's just the way you're going to behave. I just, oh gosh. Yeah. That is like, that one just gets me. I know it gets you too. Moms of boys, don't say that. And don't say it to your girls either, because then it gives the impression to girls that we have to give these boys a pass for their crappy behavior. Absolutely. Just don't say it. Done. We unpacked this a little bit in the men, de dads, depression, anxiety episode. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, if you have issues with anger, if you have issues with your relationships at a young age as a boy, and because you're a boy, no one intervenes, mm -hmm. you then become statistically a part of many men who have issues in their relationships, in their emotional management. And they're the most vulnerable demographic in mental health and suicide later. I mean, it's all connected. Yeah. Where's Fred Rogers when we need him? I know. And poor Fred got so mocked, didn't he, for being a gentle, a gentle man. It's funny that we have that phrase, right? Gentleman. Gentle man. That's what it means. Not a violent man. Teaching boys how to manage their emotions, how to connect, how to be vulnerable boys don't cry thing too, which also is just another way that we've told boys that, well, you know, you're different. You can't handle your emotions or you're just going to do this thing. Oof, it's a bad one. So we're not going to say it anymore. Okay, everybody? No more. What's the next one on our list? Oh, so this is one you've heard me say before, right? As long as you do your best. I'm in a lot of schools, you all know that. And so teachers will say to me, well, what do we say instead? Or parents will say, what do we say instead? So the thing about that phrase that is just so tricky in this achievement culture, and if you've got a kid who sort of leans towards perfectionism, 
or is really trying to do things in order to gain approval. It's all that sort of like, I'm going to be judged. I have to get perfect grades. I have to do this. If you say to a kid who's really trying to achieve, really trying to seek approval, if you say to them, as long as you've done your best, or as long as you think that's your best, that's an incredibly provocative thing to say to a kid because what does that mean? How do they know when they're done? How do they know when it's good enough? It is really, really tricky when we talk to kids about what they do in, in the language of best. I learned this from you in your Mr. Rogers lecture. Mm-hmm. You know, you gave great examples and I talked about it with my colleagues the next day. And of course, it took them a while. I'm not even sure if they got it of like why that phrase isn't the most positive in parenting. So I think it's, let's be very clear. The concept of your best can be very confusing to a child, particularly one who's vulnerable to perfectionistic tendencies, right? They'll never know, are they enough? It's too subjective. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what you'll think of this, but with that, I tried to have a conversation with my daughter who's a junior in high school and she had the PSAT this past weekend. Mm -hmm. She had a practice test opportunity to take to prepare. So what I said to her was, I would love for you to just apply yourself to be prepared. The outcome of the test doesn't really matter to me. Mm -hmm. I think you'll feel better regardless of what the outcome is if you know you prepared yourself in some way. Mm -hmm. Then she said, okay. So she did try. She did take the practice test. She did do a couple of exercises. And then I kept repeating, I don't really care about the score of your test. I'm just really grateful that you put your time into preparing it when you had other things to do this week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how did she react to that? How did she respond? She seemed pretty cool with that. And I think that there's still a part of her that was, you know, worried about wanting to do well and everything. And, And we kept just downplaying it and saying, like, this is just a test. We don't care about your score. Yeah. And I would say if you didn't prepare at all and you got your score and you weren't happy with it, you wouldn't be very happy with yourself because you knew that you didn't do the preparation work. So I think you often talk about this as like regret management. Yeah. Regret prevention. Remember that the word best is a very rigid perfectionistic word. And when we talk to kids about How much do you need to prepare for something? Or what do you want to do to be ready for something? That's also subjective, but it's a learning process. Kids may go into something, you know, they want to make the basketball team, but they didn't practice. And so then during the tryouts, they got cut. That's a learning process. And we want kids to have the opportunity to step into things and then figure out what works. We also want them to have the opportunity to differentiate between when they really need to prepare for something and when they can coast. I talk about that a lot too, the ability to cut corners. Your daughter, she has to spend some time preparing for the PSAT because that's an important thing and she does want to do well, but she's going to let something else go that really is no big deal, right? She doesn't have to make sure that her bed is made perfectly or she doesn't have to make sure that her ponytail is perfect. So helping kids recognize that there is a huge spectrum, huge gradation 
of how much effort we put into certain things, depending on how important it is to us, depending on its meaning to us, and letting kids have that flexibility. But when you say to a child, as long as you know you've done your best, and they don't know if they've done their best, or it's something that's really not all that important to them, or really not all that important in the larger schema of things, that's when it becomes tricky. You've got a child who's got an assignment that she needs to draw a bird or she needs to draw a tiger, and she is spending hours and hours and hours trying to make it what she considers the best. That's where we have to step in and make sure that we're helping kids differentiate. And if you say to your kids, is that the best you can do? Mm -hmm. Then you need to have a personal intervention to not say that anymore. Yeah, yeah. Is that the best you can do? That's a loaded question, isn't it? Childhood is to learn things, not to be a complete human being. And so you think, what do I want my child to learn? I want my child to learn how to stick with something if it's really important to them or it's important for some other reason. I want my child to know that it's okay to let things go. I want my child to know when things are good enough. I want my child to know that perfection is really a very, very difficult standard to achieve and causes people a lot of struggle and a lot of suffering. We also want kids to know, look, you got to do things sometimes when you don't feel like it. But that word best, it is just a loaded word. If you were just to say, I'm going to really work on not saying the word best, I think that would be a great way to start. Who drew the best tiger? Who baked the best cookies? Who ran the best race? That's all very provocative. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, this is the thing that my family said again and again and again and again, every single day. And I don't say it in our house. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. So when you're a parent, you're going to have your fair share of big talks with your kids, right? About all sorts of big topics. One of those big talks should involve money. And Greenlight can help with that. Greenlight is a debit card and a money app that's made for families. It allows you to do instant money transfers. You can get real-time notifications of spending. You can manage chores. You can automate allowance. I know with my kids, we really wanted to help them see the cause and effect, right? If you spend money now, you're not going to have it later. If you earn money now and you save it, maybe you can put it towards some big purchase that you're looking forward to. This is called financial literacy, and it allows kids to build independence, to learn how money works, to make them better savers, better spenders. The Greenlight app also comes with an in-app financial literacy game. It's called Level Up, so that kids can build money confidence through videos, bite-sized challenges, mini games, and more. More than 6 million parents and kids use Greenlight to learn how to make responsible financial choices. So stop putting off the money talk and start putting your kids on the right path. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash fluster. That's greenlight.com slash fluster to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash fluster. How are those New Year's resolutions going? 
Well, many are destined to fail, but lucky for you, here's one easy resolution idea that we gave you that we can all make and it will make your life easier. It'll be kinder to our planet and it will transform the way you do laundry in 2024. And that is switching to EarthBreeze. EarthBreeze looks like dryer sheets, but it's ultra concentrated laundry detergent and it couldn't be easier. You just throw a sheet in with your laundry in any temperature and you watch it dissolve in any wash cycle hot or cold. There's no measuring, there's no mess, there's no fuss, there's no wasteful plastic jug. EarthBreeze fights everyday stains and odors, giving you an amazing clean every time. The best part is you'll never run out again thanks to EarthBreeze flexible subscription that you can adjust, pause, or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties. And you'll save a whopping 40% when you subscribe. Shipping's always free, and it comes in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space. So switching to EarthBreeze won't only make laundry day easier for you, but it will also be easier on the planet. So help me make plastic jugs a thing of the past. And if EarthBreeze doesn't end up being the 2024 update of your dreams, you don't even have to return it. Just let them know it's not for you and you'll get a full refund, no questions asked. Get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash That's earthbreeze.com slash for 40% off your subscription. Okay, we're back. Okay, Lynn, this next one, I know this one really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just want my child to be happy. People are listening, they're like, well, what's wrong with that? Why don't Robin and Lynn like that? Right, I just want my child to be happy. I just want my child to never feel distress. Yes, in fact, I just don't want my child to feel anything that might make me uncomfortable. Right. Being able to tolerate your own distress and tolerate your child's distress is an incredibly valuable skill. And recognizing that life is full of moments of joy and moments of disappointment, moments of grief, moments of sadness, moments of just sort of boredom, moments of vanilla ice cream, moments of neutral. If you say to me, if you come in to say to me, I just want my child to be happy, I guarantee you the next words that'll come out of my mouth are, but not all the time. Because when you say that to a child, not only, again, it's as unrealistic as your child being perfect, you're putting an enormous amount of pressure on a child that their emotional state is what you are depending upon. I just want you to be happy means I don't have room for your distress. I can't handle the messy, bumpy parts of you. And we don't want to give kids that message. I had a college friend whose parents used it in a very manipulative way when they were pressuring him what to major in. We just want you to be happy. You need to major in business. <laughs> right, right. And it's very connected to, I just want you to find your passion. It's very similar to that. Like, I just want you to do the thing that I think will make you and me happy. Right? It's very, very difficult for kids to live up to that expectation. Let's talk about this because, of course, we want the four children in total that we've given birth to. We want our kids to feel great joy. Mm -hmm. But let's unpack this so people really understand it because it's, it's, again, it's it's sort of shifting the parenting goalpost. Mm -hmm. We want our kids to connect with other human beings and enjoy enriched connecting relationships. 
We want them to be able to handle with resilience challenges that they face. We sort of understand, like if you unpack what a happy life is, it's a pretty complicated thing. It is a complicated thing. And no one's happy all the time. So what we want, both of us, is we want to equip our kids with the bag of tools ready for all of these situations that they can meet, they can get through. And that's like what it's about, right? Yeah. And the other thing too, is that we have to look at what we've done in terms of discussing mental health with kids is that if the goal is for you to be happy all the time, then when you're not, what's wrong with you? And I think that's becoming more and more pervasive. When I talk to kids and they say, well, I went off to college and I really wasn't happy with my roommate or we didn't get along well, there's these expectations that they're going to have these wonderful experiences. College is four years full of all sorts of ups and downs. High school is four years of all sorts of ups and downs. Middle school is two years, three years, whatever it happens to be in your community, of all sorts of emotions and ups and downs. And when you say to a kid, I just want you to be happy, then when they're not, they conclude that there's something wrong with them, that they're not doing what they should be doing. They're also hesitant to talk to you about that. This is one of those things that we have to really pay attention to in our culture because the language that we use is that if you are struggling, there's something wrong with you. If you are grieving, then we're going to diagnose you with something. If you are sad, if you are struggling, you have something wrong in your brain. It's really important for kids to know that they can learn how to manage a range of emotions. And there are many philosophies. There are many interesting ways of looking at human beings that they talk about. You cannot have light without darkness. You cannot have joy without sadness. We want to expand the repertoire of emotions rather than keeping this message going that my kid's not happy, there's something wrong. And then trying to fix it, right? They don't like their teacher, so we have to get them out of the classroom. We have to get them away from this roommate. We want kids to be able to handle a range of emotions. And when the parents can't handle these disruptions and they step in to eliminate them, what's driving that parent? They feel guilt that they haven't done the right thing. They feel distress. The term for it, which I've said before, is parental experiential avoidance. We know that that's a fast track into anxiety. And we know that anxiety is a fast track into depression. When a parent says, I can't handle your emotions, I can't handle what's wrong, that's when kids shut down. The parent is not capable, doesn't know what to do. They feel helpless. They feel ill-equipped. You got to do your own work first, people. You got to figure out how to handle your own stuff. I'll share a personal parenting goal. There's a movie, not a great movie, but was a movie I enjoyed when it came out. It showed a family. It was Le Divorce with Naomi Watts and Kate Hudson. Do you remember that movie? No, I don't. Well, there's a Stockard Channing and Sam Watterson play the parents. Mm -hmm. And there's a scene where the two parents and the three grown children have had lunch and they're walking in Paris because one of the daughters lives in Paris. As a family of grown children, they're walking all arm in arm in this very picturesque scene, enjoying each other's company, Mm -hmm. like genuinely enjoying each other's company. And they were close. 
And I just said, you know what, if you can get there, for me, if my kids and I, if we can still be together joyfully, mm-hmm. having fun and being friendly, that's a goal for me. But to get there, I have to make room for a lot of other things that aren't so picture perfect. Mm-hmm. That's right. Because you're not going to be walking arm in arm joyfully unless you can also sit together with each other during the sadness, during the conflict, during the anger, right? You don't walk together truly joyfully if you haven't worked together through all of the tough stuff too. Right. Joy comes from we trust each other, we care about each other, we can be ourselves with each other. It's emotional authenticity. That's right. So one of the things you want to pay attention to, if you are a person who heard that a lot, so Robin said, you know, she heard that in her family all the time. One of the ways that it can impact you is that as a parent, if you are feeling a certain way, if you're feeling not happy, right? If your kids are driving you crazy, if after you gave birth, you were like, oh my God, this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. If then you have children that are struggling, you've got a child who's having difficulty with friendships or difficulty in school. That can make you feel incredibly inadequate because you have been taught, you were told growing up that the rule in the family was that you are supposed to be happy. So you've got to pay attention to whether or not you're getting hit with a lot of self-criticism, a lot of shame, you know, sort of like you're not doing things right because you aren't happy or because your children are struggling. So just pay attention to that. If you came from a family where it was sort of like, put on a happy face that you're able to make room for and allow yourself to not feel great all the time and to be there when your kids don't feel great all the time because that wasn't the message that you got growing up. I would just like to add from my family background, my grandmother is the one who said this all the time. And I would say that uh, a friend of mine recently said the phrase and it was evident that it came up because she's anxious about something in relation to her child. If I could go back in time, obviously I can't, but like if my grandmother, for example, who I was very close to, if you had the awareness that every time you used that phrase, it was probably because you had your own anxiety about something going on with your kids Mm -hmm. and you had that self-awareness, it would be incredible. I mean, that's what would be a game changer for my grandmother, which I have to tell you really fast. She turned, she doesn't listen to the podcast because she really doesn't understand what a podcast <laughs> is. She's always like, how are you and Lynn doing on your show? And then I'd always, you know, I, I know she doesn't get it. She turned 98 this weekend. Oh my gosh. 98. I know. And she had a little bit of an, a thing happen on her birthday and I said, look, I can tell you're really anxious and I, I think we should talk about it for a second because, you know, you've got a couple of patterns that are always right there. And did you know that you're a ruminating catastrophizer? <laughs> and she was like, I am 98 years old, right? In this, See, this is the problem. She was great in the moment. She was like, what does that mean? And I was like, well, it means that you're really good at thinking of the worst thing that could happen. And then you chew on that and think about it repeatedly. She's like, that's exactly right. Like, how did you know? (laughs) If only somebody had told me this 92 years ago. (laughs) If only somebody had told me this in the 1900s. 
Oh, that's so cute. Well, so I started off by saying that I was so surprised that Dana Carvey started therapy at 61. And your grandmother is getting these pearls of wisdom at 98. But well done. Like, yeah, A for effort, Rob. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so what's the last one? So the last one is, what's the worst that could happen? Oh, I have a grandmother who's good at that one. Yeah, that's right. So I've talked about this a lot. We don't have to go over this so much. And you all know, if you listen to the podcast, that's the catastrophic calling card, right? What's the worst that could happen? And that's when anxiety says, well, hold my beer. So rather than saying, what's the worst that can happen? You want to talk to them about, okay, so let's problem solve. When you say to somebody, what's the worst that could happen? I get why we're saying it. We're saying, look, it's not going to be so bad, or this has happened to me, or you may think this is terrible, but it's really going to be okay. Just get rid of that phrase. Just get rid of the, what's the worst that could happen and say to them, oh, I can hear that you're kind of scared about this, or this is making you nervous, or this is a really challenging thing. Let's just problem solve because that's what we're trying to do. If you miss a flight, what are you going to do? If you forget your project, what are you going to do? We want to talk to kids when they have those worried thoughts, when they start thinking, oh God, that would be terrible. We don't want to say, what's the worst that could happen? We want to say, you know what? Things do happen and let's make sure that you're a good problem solver. Catastrophic thinking is not problem solving. And so we want to make that differentiation. I love this list and I know that my reaction to these phrases are definitely a credit to working with you on the podcast and you're my sister-in-law. And so we've talked about this stuff since I've been pregnant with my first. But I think that they're really toxic phrases in parenting that are really easy to come up with a pivot. Mm -hmm. It's great that you're helping us figure out where to go in and come up with better language and better attitudes and better goals as parents. And to just recognize that the things that we say offhandedly, the things that, like I said, that are almost cliche at this point, really can sort of pack a powerful punch, not in the direction that you want it to go. I'm just going to read through them so you have them all in a row. You ready? Okay. So you need to find your passion. It runs in the family. Boys will be boys. As long as you've done your best. What's the worst that could happen? And probably I'm saving this one for last because we say it all the time. Really pay attention to this one, guys. I just want my child to be happy, right? Of course you do. But a happy child is not a child who never feels distress. Emotional management. Amen. Amen. I'm going to get you another coffee mug with that on there. I just want my child to be happy. No, a happy (laughs) child. What what was it that you just said? (laughs) I don't know. What did I just say? Well, good thing we have it recorded. You can listen back to it and then you can make me a mug. I did make Lynn a mug that says talk 85% less and a listener beat me to it and sent it to her. If this episode was helpful to you, you can join our Facebook community and we'd love it if you left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Fluster Clucks. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. 
On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.